Welcome to The Debris. This is where we talk about what was left behind by Hurricane Katrina and the floods that followed. I'm your host, Eve Tro. We're coming to you from WWNO New Orleans Public Radio. This week, a look at the storm's impact across generations. Many families evacuated together. Three generations crammed into one car. I took care of my grandmother, my great-uncle, my great-aunt, and my mom. They all passed away. They all passed away, like, within months of each other once we got here because it was just too much on them, you know. That's Stasia Davis, a former New Orleans resident who moved to Houston after Katrina, and her story of loss is a common one. This is a family city. Grandparents and grandkids, cousins, aunts and uncles often live in the same house, share the same traditions. Intergenerational contact, it's one of the hallmarks of New Orleans culture, from music to cooking to inheriting an old shotgun house. Part of the rebuilding of New Orleans has been an effort to make sure that old and young continue to learn from each other, passing down traditions and innovating on them. Writer and teacher Michael Patrick Welch aimed to create a new paradigm for music education after the storm. While New Orleans is known as the birthplace of jazz, it's rap and hip-hop that you more often hear coming from the cars and porches. So he started teaching music criticism and songwriting just after the flood in 2006. Of the dozens of amazing songs he's produced with students, we asked him to tell us about one. That first summer after the storm, most of the traditional camp spots were all flooded, so we were graciously loaned the Tarot Synagogue uptown on St. Charles. We recorded at least 10 songs by the end of the summer, and I regret not having them write more about Katrina while everything was so fresh. We'd all just returned to the city with our various new stress disorders, but I remember how not shook up the kids seemed. Maybe they were just used to New Orleans being generally violent and screwed up, but like, I remember one little girl sitting, coloring, and just casually telling me our dog had drowned. And so did my grandma, she added, and my cousin, without ever looking up from her coloring. So yeah, it might have been good for them to record a lot of songs about the flood. I was just scared to bum them out, really. It's summer camp, you know. So we only spent one day on the topic and recorded just one Katrina song called Katrina Katrina, Oh No. The song's first half is sprinkled with a lot of religion and talk of praying, and then that suddenly breaks down into this chorus of little girls singing a vaguely inappropriate coda from a Destiny's Child song that was popular at the time. I would do what you want me to do. But then, Art and Javian trade verses. Art and Javian were a big brother, little sister duo who honestly, they deserved a record contract. When I freestyle my words, I'll spit in your face to give you a taste. Have you feeling like you just got made? You don't even got a life. All I need is a race. In a pencil, in a paper, in a shoestring list. In the streets, they call me Lil' Ace. But when I throw them things up, 
I had to push Art to write his Katrina verse. He always wanted to freestyle, but in order to touch the microphone, all the students had to show me first what they were going to say. I mean, that's what made it a real writing class. The excellent rap that Art ended up writing uh, had nothing to do with Katrina, but it's followed by a more poignant second break where the girls all sing this refrain about when I came home. Then after that comes Art's sister Javian. My name is Javian. I'm only nine. I live in New Orleans. I have a, a great time. Next year I'm going to the field. Holler me if you're not fit before I hit you with the whip of intelligence. Hurricane Katrina trying to mess up my life, but now I'm doing just right. She admitted to me that she had her sister write her verse for her, but still just the timbre of Javian's voice and her confidence. No matter who wrote it, Javian owned it. This year is my 10th summer teaching summer camp. My oldest students this summer are 13, and it feels really strange that there isn't even one kid in the whole camp who really remembers Hurricane Katrina. So this year I decided, uh, at the risk of bumming them out, to teach them a little bit about the flood. And of course, I started with the song that my students recorded when our future was very uncertain. Katrina, Katrina, my name is Katrina. The song is Katrina, Katrina, Oh No, and that was Michael Patrick Welch and his 2006 summer camp students. New Orleans is famous for its school marching bands that fuel the city's Mardi Gras parades. But other traditional forms, like brass band music and jazz, have been continued over the decades by kids literally playing side-by-side with old-timers. On the streets, at home, in clubs. A new book, Talk That Music Talk, from the Neighborhood Story Project, traces musical lines through generations. Producer Eve Abrams has this story about how the music community regrouped after Katrina to keep the generations in touch and keep tradition alive. When Will Hightower was in the fifth grade, the kids in his school were really into athletics. Who was the fastest runner? Who had the best shot? He hated it. I really just wanted to get out of that. I didn't like the locker room environment and stuff like that. So I decided to join band. Will thought, I'll get out of P.E. and learn how to play an instrument. He pictured something cool, like a saxophone, but his teacher handed him a clarinet. At first, he thought it was torturous. It's a really hard instrument, and it's like, when you first start playing it, it doesn't sound good. And for a long time, it really doesn't ever start to sound good. (laughs) And it wasn't until I started going to the park service and, like, hearing actual clarinet players like Ricky Paulin, Joseph Terragano... There's all these great, like, traditional players just play it in such a beautiful way. Evan Christopher, and, oh, man, hearing all of them play it, it really changed my perspective on the instrument and really, really kind of made me want to be a clarinet player. Will no longer lives in New Orleans, at least not full-time. He just finished his first year at Berklee College of Music in Boston, studying clarinet. But it was through the program he mentioned at the National Park Service, called Music for All Ages, where Will first learned from professional musicians— They taught him, keep doing it, develop your voice. 
And not only that, use music to help people through everyday life and death in that unique New Orleans way. School is teaching you the techniques and the classical and the, like the, the educated way of learning something. Whereas in New Orleans, this is kind of like the cultural way, the, the handed down story way of telling something. Like you need to be able to tell a story musically. And I don't think that school can really teach you that. You know, I like to say it's a part of the spirit transfer. Bruce Sunpie Barnes started Music for All Ages as a national park ranger and musician. It's one of many programs bringing older professional musicians together with young people. Hurricane Katrina disrupted and dislocated neighborhood life, and these programs became stand-ins for more natural relationships between neighbors, uncles, grandmothers, which have produced thousands of musicians in New Orleans for generations. In a city where music education has always been about connection, Barnes says no musician would ever want his or her gifts and knowledge to die on the vine. You want to give it up. You want to find young people that are excited to pick up the torch, so to speak, and carry on the tradition. doesn't mean they need to sound exactly like the last person that played it. It means they need to deeply understand and respect the spirit of those people who've transferred it along. Barnes and Rachel Brunlin of the Neighborhood Story Project trace stories of teaching music in a new book, Talk That Music Talk. It pays homage to sacred musical spaces like bar rooms and street corners, It also documents the lines of teachers, traditions, and organizations that keep music alive and functioning as part of New Orleans life. Take the story of John Michael Bradford, the 18-year-old who just graduated from NOCA and who's also bound for Berklee College of Music on a full scholarship. Bradford's family evacuated for Katrina, nine people and two dogs in San Antonio for months. Sam Williams, trombone player in the funk band Big Sam's Funky Nation, was in that group. John Michael was nine years old, and he became infatuated, first with Sam and second with music. He was ravenous for instruction. Back in New Orleans, his mother, Angie Bradford, found music for all ages. Bradford says it was simple. The older guys would play, and the kids would imitate them. And it wasn't like a classroom. Because people would come into the park, they would sit there in the chairs like they were there for a concert, and they would watch the kids learn by ear the music. At age 9 and 10, kids also learned how to read a crowd and move the energy. They learned older traditional styles and how to develop a voice to solo. John Michael was in heaven. One of the musicians he met, tuba player Mark Smith, invited John Michael to busk in Jackson Square, a traditional spot for street music. John Michael would play all day Saturdays until the square closed. It's there he started learning from trumpeter Kenneth Terry. Terry says it's been an honor being part of John Michael's life, an honor for both of them. Oh, man. I love the kid. John Michael used to actually leave my house like almost seven days a week, man. You know, his mom used to... uh, bring him over, you know, I used to hang out with him, everything, show him, you know, the music like I learned it. Terry learned from Milton Baptiste, who backed up blues musicians like Professor Longhair before joining Harold Dejean's Olympia Brass Band and creating the Junior Olympians to get youngsters interested in parading. The same steps that Milton Baptiste took me through to learn the music I took John Michael through also. I, I just pass it on, you know. This is John Michael. 
It's late on a Monday night after a class sponsored by the Tipitinas Foundation. What's the one where you were peeing? You went down to eight. John Michael has stayed behind after all the other kids have left, like he does every week, to ask his teacher, saxophonist Donald Harrison, who's sitting at the organ, how to play something. That's enough right there, I think. John Michael's mom, Angie Bradford, says she can't even name all the musicians who've helped John Michael. Harrison has been doing it since John Michael was in the sixth grade. I don't know. I just want to see them do what they want to do. This, this business is such a tough business, and so many people helped me. So many people came along and uh, tried to ensure that I had a good understanding of the music. Donald Harrison says he wants to be like those guys, all the elders who shared their knowledge with him. That way, even after he's died, he'll still be connected to the music because John Michael will teach the next generation. Harrison can see it so clearly, this thread of connection. He's not worried about it breaking. John Michael's got it sewn up. Eve Abrams, on new programs to take the place of relationships that were just taken for granted before the storm. Hurricane Katrina caused this kind of cultural interruption, not to mention the widespread physical and emotional devastation. For many families, it also ruined their finances. So how can we begin to measure that loss of wealth on a mass scale? How much younger family members won't inherit because of Katrina? Or how many college or retirement funds were drained to rebuild homes? Here's one example to ponder. After Katrina, Louisiana's Road Home Program, the largest housing recovery program in the nation's history, systematically awarded African-American homeowners less than their white counterparts. So someone with a 2,000-square-foot home in a predominantly black neighborhood wound up getting less money, significantly less, than a homeowner in a predominantly white neighborhood with the same size and type of house. That was the finding of a federal lawsuit settled in 2011. Kashana Hill is executive director of the Greater New Orleans Fair Housing Action Center. She explains the case. What happened was um, after Hurricane Katrina um, and after the Road Home program um, was rolled out, we uh, had some housing counselors on board at the Fair Housing Action Center. And we started to notice something interesting. What we noticed was that the African-American clients who were coming in and who were seeking these rebuilding grants were being told that the amounts they would receive were less than what we knew our white clients were receiving. It became clear that something was wrong. And so what happened was the uh, pre-storm values of the homes were used to determine the amount of money that people would receive in order to be able to rebuild their homes. And I think just hearing about that at first glance, that seems like a fair way, right, to figure out um, how much money someone would receive. But that formula fails to take into account the history of discrimination in this country. Um, Redlining, you know, is something that um, the banks and the United States government were doing in the 1940s and 50s, where they would refuse to lend money so that African-American people could live in certain neighborhoods. That led to creating these economically depressed neighborhoods, primarily neighborhoods in which African-American people would live through no fault of the homeowners, you know, were, were the values less. What would have been a fair way to assess homes? 
the actual amount of work that was needed on the home could have been perhaps a less discriminatory way um, to assess uh, the grant. Right, because like the cost of a new roof, for example, is the cost of a new roof. Exactly. And the cost of the labor is the same no matter exactly. the neighborhood. Exactly. And so with that, did we then see a higher rate of African-American homeowners turning their homes back over to the state instead of choosing to rebuild? I think that that would be, yes, a fair assessment of what was happening. And so we certainly saw um, in the Lower Ninth Ward, for instance, um, deciding to take advantage of option three of the road home program. Which and, was what? Which, which allowed um, the state basically to purchase the property. So those homeowners chose not to rebuild and people instead just took a loan. So that, in some ways, could have led to this demographic shift that did come to pass. I mean, the city is a little bit different than it was before Katrina. We were about a 70-30 black-white city. Now we're about 60-40. You could look back at, at this discrepancy in the valuing of homes as a reason for that. Absolutely. It's certainly fair to say that the discriminatory system for determining the amounts that homeowners would receive to rebuild does play some role in the current racial makeup of the city. You may have had a lot of homeowners who then decided not to rebuild because the award they got was based on the pre-storm value instead of the amount that it would cost to rebuild. Then they turn that house over to the state. Now, they get the pre-storm value of the house, but now they don't have a house. Exactly. So what is the impact of that? Well, the impact is that those people um, would not have the wealth um, and the asset to pass down to their next generation. The asset then becomes interrupted. And so sort of the wealth building becomes interrupted as a result of not being able to rebuild after Hurricane Katrina. And so from there then, um, where did this litigation go? So what happened was a federal lawsuit was filed. And so that was in 2008. Yes, correct. The lawsuit was filed in 2008 in federal court. And then after some litigation, the case settled in 2011. So what did that settlement mean? What did people get? So the settlement meant that um, the ability to rebuild your home would no longer be tied to the pre-storm value and more equitable uh, measures would be used to award grants to rebuild homes. Unfortunately, homeowners who had already received grants prior to the 2011 settlement were left with the grants that they had received. It's the good fight to go to court and prove these things, to prove that people were wronged. But what does that do, really? Well, that brings up an important point because um, the government, the federal government, did learn the lesson of the road home program. For instance, after Hurricane Sandy, um, rebuilding grants were not based on the pre-storm values of homes. And so hopefully people who experience these life-changing disasters in other communities will not have to face the same set of circumstances that New Orleanians faced after Hurricane Katrina. Kashana Hill is executive director of the Greater New Orleans Fair Housing Action Center. Thanks so much. Thank you. We also caught up with one of the plaintiffs in that lawsuit. Almarie Ford lives in a blue two-story house on a suburban street in New Orleans East. Bought it nearly 30 years ago. It took on about six feet of flood water. She had insurance, but it didn't cover much of that water damage. And she was eligible for Road Home, which estimated her total cost for repairs at something like $200,000. So how much did she get from the state? 
I think originally they may have given me something like $5,000 or a little few pennies over $5,000. But after I got the 5000 then there was something that went on where you had to give back so much of that. So in the end, I only got like $2,500. I knew I had some insurance, but I didn't have enough uh, to replace all the contents and everything. So, I mean, you were working full-time. Yes pretty soon after the storm, and then you were trying to get your home back together. I mean, just figuring out all the house stuff, insurance stuff, was a full-time job in and of itself. Yes. But I was willing to put my stuff to the side, and being a social worker, I understood the trauma, and we needed to get services to the people. Mm -hmm. So I worked and came home on the weekends and tried to start getting things together to take care of my own things. I had to spend all all that I had trying to get my house back together and livable. And after the lawsuit, the, the most amazing part to me was that they said, you, um, well, those of you who were able to get back and use whatever resources you had to make your home livable, that's fantastic. But we will use what money we still have for folks who have not been able to come back at all. And I wasn't opposed to that. I just thought that was very strange, especially since people in the Garden District got money that had no water in their homes. I mean, like, I have personal friends that got $60,000 and all that, and I get 2500 Come on. Is there any reason to think about any of this anymore? You have to think about it because, I mean, I'm still living Katrina because I have I actually have an antique bed from the 1890s. I wanted to put it in the addition whenever it gets finished. I'm not going to do it. That is the one thing that survived Katrina. I'm not going to put it downstairs in my house. So now I can't even sleep in it if I ever manage to get the money together to get the house completed. It's this symbol. You can't let go of it, but you can't use it. Exactly, exactly. And the one tree, the one evergreen that survived, all the others died. And so I can't cut that down. That's growing too close to the house. I keep having to come trim it a little bit and all that, but I, I'm not cutting that down because that's life, you know. And I do agree with what everyone says that we're very resilient people. That is 100% true, but that does not mean that we're not still traumatized. And I will never forget that the United Nations Rapporteur for Internally Displaced People, I was at a church, he was at an African-American church listening to him speak, and the man said, It will be two generations before you recuperate from Hurricane Katrina. It's like two generations. But I I know from the data and from what he lived, he knew what he was talking about. That's still going to be with us for the rest of our lives, how we were slighted and overlooked. Al-Marie Ford, a plaintiff in the road home discrimination lawsuit of 2008. She rebuilt her house with her own money, and she plans to stay. Actor Wendell Pierce is known for his roles in HBO shows like The Wire and Treme. Pierce is currently here in New Orleans, starring in a production of the play Brothers from the Bottom, written by New Orleans native Jackie Alexander. It's about two brothers on either end of the post-Katrina gentrification debate. Here, Pierce's character makes the argument for preserving a neighborhood's history. So after all these years, barely setting foot in New Orleans, 
you suddenly decide you want to take the time to come back down here and work at revitalizing the community. Why would you say something like that? When we were little, we used to put on capes and jump off that rail and play in superheroes. Remember that? And on that street, Daddy taught us how to ride a bike, and then later on, how to drive a car. And every Mardi Gras morning, we used to help hunters from Daddy's gang get dressed right here on this porch. Forget about Christmas, that was the most exciting day of the year for both of us. No place on the face of this earth can remind you of those things the same way as being home. And that's what people miss. They miss home. And that's where we'll put down this piece of Katrina Debris, Home. You can find our podcast every week through the end of August on iTunes or use the podcast app on your smartphone. Just search for WWNO and Katrina the Debris. Our producer is Kate Richardson. Digital director is Jason Saul. Paul Mawson is general manager of WWNO. Special thanks this week to Janet Wilson, the Greater New Orleans Fair Housing Action Center, Billy Holiday Theater, and Wendell Pierce. Katrina the Debris is produced here in New Orleans. If you like it and you want to hear more, consider giving to support New Orleans Public Radio. You can do that at WWNO.org. Support also comes from Dirty Coast Press. Learn more about their locally designed and produced products at DirtyCoast.com. I'm your host, Eve Tro for WWNO New Orleans Public Radio. I'll be taking a few steps away from this podcast for a while, letting some of our great staff take over with their stories. Until next time, be well, be good, be safe, and thanks.